Welcome to Bible Foundations with Ben Dixon, where we're studying books of the Bible one chapter at a time. Hey, I want to make sure I remind you where you can watch and also listen to these podcasts for future reference. You can go to our YouTube channel at Ignite Global Ministries. There's a playlist called Bible Foundations. Please subscribe, review, share this with other people. You can also go on iTunes and Spotify. You just want to look us up by typing in Bible Foundations with Ben Dixon. And again, scribe, subscribe, not scribe, subscribe, review, share. We want everybody to join us as we study the Bible together. We're jumping in to 1 Peter and chapter 1. And here's what I want to do uh, before we do that. I want to lay out a little bit of an introduction because we believe in the inductive Bible study method, which essentially is this, observation, interpretation, application. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? And in order for us to truly do that, we've we've got to have some context. Who wrote First Peter? Who did they write it to? What was the primary theme? And who was uh, who was not only this written to, but what were the principles? What were the points? What was the importance and the emphasis that is found here in this letter? And as we understand that, we can extrapolate principles for our lives today. So far too often, what we end up doing is we try to take out principles without understanding the culture, the context, and finally, the command. And so I want to encourage you toward that in your own Bible study. But as we look at the Bible together, we're going to do that jumping into 1 Peter and chapter 1. And so let's first look at who wrote 1 Peter. We know the Apostle Paul is the writer of this letter, and we know that for multiple reasons, as we're going to read the text here in just a minute. But the internal evidence starts with verse 1, and verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself. In chapter 5 and verse 1, the author of this letter says he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Well, that's congruent with the apostle Peter. Peter was a witness to the sufferings of Jesus. And then also we have early church sources, for example, uh, Clement Alexandria and Eusebius. These are different church fathers and church leaders. We have one that's in AD 185, 200 AD, 300 AD. So the church fathers and those that we look to in history have all ascribed this letter to Peter. So I think it's safe to assume that Peter wrote first Peter. Now you can assume that, you can just say that, but it's important that we have internal and external evidence for who wrote this letter, and we do. The second part is, who was Peter? You might be asking that question if you're just joining a Bible reading plan at this time, or maybe you're new to the Bible. That might be the question that you ask, but we all sort of kind of have an idea uh, who he was, but Peter was a young Jewish fisherman originally known as Simon. That's why sometimes we call him Simon Peter, but Jesus changed his name to Peter, and we're introduced to him in the gospel accounts, and he's spoken of over 150 times, believe it or not. But in Mark chapter 1 and verse 16, Jesus identified Peter and called him to follow Jesus, and that's exactly what Peter did. He's one of the original 12 disciples who was set apart by Jesus to become an apostle. He was an eyewitness to the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which qualified him as an apostle. And he, of course, was a primary leader in the early church. History bears that out, and so does the book of Acts. So as you continue to read the Bible from the Gospels to the book of Acts to the letters of Paul and, of course, the letters 
of Peter and James and others, we find that when Peter is mentioned, he is revered as a church leader. And so this is who he was, but who was he writing to in this letter in particular? Well, in verse one, Peter tells us exactly who he's writing to. He says, to those who reside as aliens or foreigners, could be another word, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to those who are in Asia Minor, that would be modern-day Turkey, and most scholars believe that he's addressing a large, in large majority, the Gentile audience. And these are believers who are facing persecution. Now, scholars debate, is he talking to believers that are facing physical persecution or just verbal persecution with sort of like um, the beginnings of what might be physical? And he's preparing them for what is inevitable. In other words, if you start undergoing insults and other types of verbal persecution and some level of action toward you that's opposing the work and the mission of Christ through your life, what's really around the corner most likely is also going to be physical and or violent persecution, which actually is what happened. And so there's a little bit of debate how far into the whole persecution that these believers are in terms of what they're experiencing. I would actually go as far as saying, it seems to me from the text, which we're going to find out through these five chapters, that they're definitely experiencing verbal persecution, a lot of pressure, maybe in their jobs and in their homes and among their family. But uh, it doesn't seem that the violent persecution that others in the Bible begin to experience has yet come underway. But that is inevitable, and it is forthcoming. So these these people that he's writing to are those that are experiencing persecution. They are believers. And the primary theme of 1 Peter, if I were just to sort of sum it up ahead of time, what would I say? Well, it's actually more than one thing. It's several things. The first is Peter's trying to inspire hope, and you would assume that because they're experiencing pain and persecution. And the second thing that he's doing is he's encouraging endurance in the face of suffering. Now, that's obvious. Why would they need that? Because it's all about longevity. When um, you have a good day and then three bad days, you have to have a certain type of endurance to be encouraged, to have joy, and to have peace. You need to be reminded of who you are and who Jesus is and what this is all about. Why is there any uh, purpose to the suffering? What is God doing in the midst of that? And that all of those things help a person to have endurance, and Peter goes after that explicitly, as we as we will see. And we also see that he's calling them to a faithfulness to the way of Jesus. Now, not just to follow Jesus sort of theoretically, but he's calling them to a faithfulness that looks like Jesus, that they would carry their cross, that they would name the name of Christ, that they would proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, that they would continue his mission and his ministry, that they wouldn't stop because things aren't easy. In fact, things aren't easy at this point on. When we look at church history, it actually gets quite a bit more difficult for believers. The first season was great, and then you get to Acts chapter 4, and it was not so great. And so Peter and those readers that he's writing to, they're living in that not-so-great at this point, and church history bears out. There's a lot of not-so-great that starts to come. And so there are a lot of things that we can grab a hold of, that we can lay hold of for ourselves. We, too, need to be inspired with the hope that we have. We, too, need to have an encouragement toward endurance and to walk with Jesus long-term. And we, too, need to be encouraged toward a faithfulness in the way of Jesus, not just to say, hey, I follow him, but to say, you know what? 
over the rest of my life, I want to be faithful to carry the cross, to make Jesus known. And this is the way in which I love him, and this is how I show my love for him, as Jesus said in John chapter 14, that if we love him, we will obey his commandments. And one of his commandments was to make disciples of all nations and to baptize and Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach people to observe everything that he commanded. We need to have an endurance and encouragement to be faithful to the way of Jesus. So we're going to glean some things from this passage that I think are very helpful to us today. But here's what I'd like to do. Let's just thematically work through chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 1 and 2. And I'm I'm calling this section like a greeting to the scattered saints. That's what I think is happening here. He's greeting the scattered saints. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Amen. This is a greeting to the scattered saints. He sort of opens up with a typical Greek greeting. In that era, this was very normal for a writer to identify themselves, identify their audience, and then add a special greeting. It's like a typical protocol. When you read this genre of literature in those times, it isn't just a a biblical way to write a letter. This this sort of greeting was pretty typical. Uh, But this is interesting because he opens up by saying, to those who are chosen. Other translations would actually use the term elect, to those who are elect. Now, this terminology carries a lot of theological debate among Christian camps, namely those that are Calvinist and those that are Arminianist. And this really is the debate over God choosing people for salvation, some for wrath and some for salvation. A Calvinist believes, and this isn't all that they believe, but they believe that God, not just according to his foreknowledge, but that's a part of it, but God chose whom he is going to save, and those are the ones that Jesus died for, and others he chose for them, this is called double predestination, to go to an eternity without him. This is what we call hell. So God chose some for salvation and others not for salvation, but eventually they would end up in what we call hell. Uh, This is the Calvinist perspective. The Arminianist believes that Jesus died for all, that all can come to Christ through faith and repentance, that it's not just those who are chosen by God, but it's anybody who hears the gospel and responds with a willing, repentant, faith-filled heart. And that's what, of course, I believe that's the camp that I'm a part of, but I understand why some people in the Calvinist camp get there. And they'll use this verse to say, see, look, look what it says. It says, those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. But you've got to read the context, okay? When you take this all in, when it says chosen and he adds by the foreknowledge of God, the word foreknowledge means to know something before it happens. And so that's the tension of the mystery of God, that God knows everything before it happens. This means he's omniscient. Omniscient means God has perfect knowledge, past, present, and future. It's an attribute of God that he does not share with anyone else. Like, we are not omniscient. There are attributes that God does share with us, and then there are attributes he does not share, and this is one of them. And so, because he knows who is going to choose him, he 
sets them up or predestines them according to his purposes and his will. And that's the mystery of God's sovereignty that we do not fully understand, nor can I, you're seeing me having a hard time articulating it because it's God's stuff. It's not human stuff. We're trying to understand it. We can study it and we want to come to the best understanding that we can. But the reality is, is that when the finite tries to describe or even understand the infinite, um, there's going to be some gaps. And that's, if God's God and we're not, that's understandable. And so when we look at this, to me, to think that the elect or the chosen are the ones that salvationally God has placed into the column of these are his and it's because of his choosing and they didn't even have to really put anything into it in terms of their belief or their faith or whatever. It's that God even gave that to them. And and in a, in a way, they they a Calvinist would believe not God coerced, uh, but what God has chosen, a person cannot resist his will. And I don't believe that that's seen in this passage. It just isn't stated that way. And any other passage, Ephesians 1 and Romans chapter 8 and other passages that people point to that are in that camp, I think you have to read into it the theology that you already have. But let's just back up for a second. Who is Peter talking to? Peter is speaking to exiles who are scattered abroad that are undergoing persecution. So this is a group of people, not an individual, and his purpose in writing this is to assure them that they belong to Christ and Christ knows who are his. And this verse was not intended to make individuals feel like God chose them for salvation outside of any choosing that they would have in terms of their response to God's grace in Jesus. It just simply couldn't have meant that. So let me read it to you again. He's saying, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, to those who are out there and are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. So they're chosen to obey Jesus Christ. They're set apart in Christ, which does not imply that they didn't respond to him in faith and repentance, but they're chosen in Christ to obey. So these words connect to the overall purpose of why that he's writing. Now, if we just move on from that theological debate, uh, in his greeting, Peter reveals the triune God and his work uh, in his people. Have you noticed in this passage, he mentions the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this is really powerful because it shows us that Peter had a Trinitarian theology. There are people today that do not believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal. They actually teach that Jesus was an anointed man, or they uh, teach sort of a little bit of ambiguity around Jesus, and some even go as far as saying that the Holy Spirit is just basically like a, the, a force. Um, it's, he, he is not a person. He is not co-equal and co-eternal alongside the Son and the Father, which is heresy. Uh, Non-Trinitarian theology is heresy, and so we teach that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are God. Yes, there's a mystery. Once again, uh, there are things that are hard to articulate and understand, but the Bible's quite clear, um, and these terms that we see just in his greeting reveal the Trinity 
in the work of redemption. And that is that the fullness of God is involved in the fullness of redemption. And that's, that's a powerful thing to just stop and pause, especially as students of the Bible. You want to reflect on passages like this and go, wow, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Godhead is involved in the fullness of redemption. And Peter absolutely wants us to think that, and so we do. But we move on here to verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 to 5. And if I were to label this section in his letter, I would say this is where he's talking about how great a salvation that we have how great a salvation. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. And so clearly he's moving into the conversation about salvation. Uh, scattered, persecuted believers absolutely need to hear this, that we share a great salvation in Christ. And when we're struggling and suffering, we tend to lose perspective. I, I don't know about you, but just to sort of relate to this for a minute, I have not undergone great Uh, persecution in my life. I've had challenges. I've had these kinds of things, um, a level of verbal persecution, but nothing probably in comparison to them. But I can tell you when you're struggling or suffering or you're undergoing even, let's just say, something natural or even spiritual opposition uh, from the enemy, you tend to lose perspective. And so absolutely, we want to focus on salvation. Um, And this is what even David talks about, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, why would David talk about that? Because he was going through an incredible amount of pain, and he's saying, I've lost something. I've lost the joy of my salvation. I've lost the perspective of what God has done for me. It's just easy to have happen, and so we want to look back unto God. We want to lift up our eyes to the hills from whence comes our help. Our help comes from from the Lord. Everything comes from the Lord. But there's several things in reference to the great salvation that we have. Peter wants to remind them of. Number one, this salvation is because of God's mercy. It is shown through Jesus Christ, but God is a merciful God. Jesus is proof of that. All of God's goodness towards us begins with his mercy. It does not begin with what we do, and it doesn't end with what we do. All we do is receive God's goodness. All we do, we're a recipient to the mercy and the grace and the love of God. You know, Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, he made this comment when thinking about our salvation and the mercy of God. He said, no other attribute could have helped us had mercy been refused. As we are by nature, justice condemns us, holiness frowns upon us, power crushes us, truth confirms the threatening of the law, and wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of our God that all our hopes begin. Now, I think from a prince of a preacher, that is just a powerful quote to say everything starts and stops with the mercy of God 
toward us. If we did not have his mercy, we would not be able to make it because there is in and of ourselves no good thing without his redemptive work through Christ. The second thing that Peter says to these people is we have a living hope. Now you should quote that, air quotes, we have a living hope. Our hope is alive. What does he mean by that? He means we have a confident expectation of that which we carry in this life. It is alive, and it needs to be resurrected from time to time. It is not something that we just sort of pat each other on the back to feel better. Well, you know, Jesus did save us and he's coming back for us. No, friend, that encourages us. This is what Peter's saying, like, whether you're going through a hard time or an easy time, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, we carry a living hope because there's a living Christ who has done something on our behalf that we could never do. And the third thing that Peter is saying through this part of the passage, is we have an imperishable inheritance, righteousness, joy, peace, and eternal life, something that does not fade away. Now, you might not realize this, but this word imperishable, it's talking about, he's talking about the inheritance that we have. It means that it's incorruptible. And this was a Greek term that meant something that has not been ravaged by an army. So the picture would be this, is that an army would come in and wipe out a town or a city and sort of leave nothing overturned. They would burn down houses. Um, they would pillage as much as they wanted. But every now and again, when the people of that town came back to the place that they lived and it was just damaged and ravaged, they would find these things that were meaningful or that had some type of value. And that thing was, it was imperishable. It wasn't ravaged by an evil enemy army. It was something that endured even through all that had transpired. And so this word imperishable means that even if something terrible happens, it still remains. And so this is the way that they would use this word. Peter's saying, you have an imperishable. You have something that cannot be ravaged by an enemy, by an army of any kind. And doesn't that make a lot of sense to use this Greek word in reference to those who are experiencing persecution? to remind them that they've got something that cannot be taken. People can take your lives, they can take your livelihood, but you're carrying something that is alive and well and cannot be stolen by anybody. That's really powerful. He meant for it to be that way. And the last part of this is our salvation is kept by God's power through the Holy Spirit. Our all-powerful, all-knowing God has the ability to keep us when everything seems dark and grim. I bet you they were encouraged when they heard Peter talk about this because Peter himself had actually gone through all this kind of stuff. And we move from that section of how great is salvation into verses 6 through 12. And I'm calling this the purpose of our suffering and trials, particularly for them, the purpose of their suffering and trials. He's, he's trying to help them see the purpose of it because God wastes nothing. And so verse 6 to 12 says this, In this you greatly rejoice in salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And through you have not seen him, 
And though, sorry, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Wow, there's a lot here. So this passage is talking to us again about the purpose of suffering and trials. So number one, trials and trouble do not last. That's one thing he wants to get across to them. And it serves a greater purpose if our hearts and our eyes are fixed on Jesus. He wants to convey that to them. Another thing is trials test the quality of our faith and they refine us for greater trust in Jesus for the days ahead. What we're going through now prepares us for where we're going tomorrow. Trials bring us close to Jesus and they call us to long for more of him in this life and the next. Do you notice how Peter is constantly pushing their mind and their heart towards this perspective that is eternal? And that really is part of what happens when we get refined as silver and as gold. Uh, this is the idea is that it's imperishable. It lasts forever. We, we might physically die, but gold and silver lasts beyond us. Trials give us a longing for his coming and for his presence, and they bring praise and joy and excitement to truly see him physically and walk with him. And this passage even tells us something about the prophets. It's saying that the prophets of old who were prophesying about the first and the second coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and there were things they just didn't know. I mean, they only knew what God gave them to prophesy, but they were making careful inquiries and searches into the time and the person through whom all that they were prophesying would come. They were consumed with who the Messiah would be and when these things would take place. Why? Well, part of it was they were suffering. The prophets of old suffered. Even though they had these prophetic words and they knew the Messiah was coming, they themselves were constantly searching and longing and looking for when these things would take place. Well, Peter uses that not just as a sort of an explanation of people in history, but Peter's using that also as an example for how they could live their lives. Hey, be reminded that there were prophets and they knew what was coming, just like you know what's coming. And the way that they held themselves was they constantly were consumed with and looked into, waited for, and longed for that hope that they had received in their prophetic words and understanding. And so the prophets were servants to those who would ultimately receive the gospel, which were the apostles, and those that received the message of the gospel, which are the readers of this letter. And so there's purpose in the trial. Peter wants them to know that. We understand that for our lives as well. But as we move into verse 13, and I'm going to read the rest of the passage or the rest of the chapter here, I want to focus a little bit on what I'm calling the importance and motivation for godly living. And, and here's what Peter says in verse 13, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now get this, therefore, now that we've talked about a great salvation and purpose and trials, therefore, because this is your reality and this is what you have in Christ, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you." who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And then he quotes this. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off or fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Take a breath. That's a long passage. All of this, I think he's helping them see something, the importance and their motivation for godly living. He shares with them who God is, who they are, what Christ has done, and really who they are as a result of Christ, and how wonderful, how amazing, um, how eternal this salvation is. And from there, he's saying, now you need to know that your lot in life is to live godly. It's to live as an example. It's to follow the great example, Jesus Christ. Prepare your mind for action. Uh, The old translations, King James and others would say, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. What a great statement, ancient statement that is. When you gird up your loins, it was another way of saying when they would wear robes, that they would pull up their robes in a certain way and tie them so that they could be free to run, free to move, and they need Needed to move swiftly. He's saying, because you know who you are and who God is and what is happening to you, and this is coming against you, you need this needs to equip you to gird up the loins of your mind. You need to be prepared for action. You can't, this isn't a time to sulk. This isn't a time for self-pity. This is a time for you to be aware and uh, and moving forward in what God has for you. Be ready. He then says, be sober of spirit, or another version would say, be self-controlled. And in their culture, when someone said this, it meant not to drink too much wine or don't allow yourself to be intoxicated. Obviously, if we're intoxicated in any way, we're not aware, we're not awake to the things that are happening, we're not sharp, we're dull. And so this was a statement that they would make in their culture saying, don't be intoxicated, don't be getting drunk, don't allow yourself to be consumed with anything else. Know what you're doing, know where you're going, know who you are, this is vital, this is important. Be sober, be ready. This helps us to stay focused on the grace and the revelation of Jesus. Friends, he's saying God has a plan and he's coming back. And if you lose focus of what Jesus is doing, your life in Christ will look nothing like him. And so he's encouraging and exhorting these believers. He tells them, refrain from your former way of life, the sins of your past. He calls them to a holy way of living. Be holy as he is holy. Now, this is not a new concept. 
This is Leviticus 11:44. Be holy, be consecrated, be set apart. God is holy. God is otherly. God is set apart from that which the way the world is going. The sinful mind is living. God is separate. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we have to have lives that are set apart for God and his purposes, no matter what the current of the world and the culture, however that's going, we need to follow the way of Christ, the way of the lamb. Verse 17 to 19, Peter says, if you address the father, or another way of saying this, if you are a Christian, then make sure that your conduct in your life is in keeping with knowing who he is and what he is doing. And then he says, know this, that God will judge. God is a judge. 25 times Jesus talked about God being a judge, whether by principle, by story, or just direct words. Jesus even spoke about rewards, that when we come to face-to-face with God and we stand before him, we are going to give an account for our life. And so Peter reminds them of that. And he talks about, you have been redeemed. And to be redeemed means you're bought back from bondage by the payment of a price. You've been set free by paying of a ransom. Redemption was a technical term for money paid back to uh, buying a prisoner back from war you know, a POW. So this was a ransom that was given. We were in a war and the enemy had us and Jesus gave his precious blood to buy us back, to redeem us. And this this is a mindset that they would have to understand sort of how, the, how a war would go and what a POW was. And we've been purchased out of the camp of the enemy and we've been set apart. We are to live a holy life for the one who redeemed us, who purchased us. Redemption also means that all things are being made right. It's like if a chair was kicked over, it's like the chair needs to be set back right so it can be useful for why it was created. And we need to be set back right so that we can be useful for the very purpose for which we were created. And he tells them, you have been set free of your bondage. You have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. So know who you are, know who God is, know what he's called you to, and don't forget it. No matter what we're going through, we've got to be reminded that God has a plan, God has a purpose, and we are all a part of it. Trials have a purpose in this life. If you're going through something, be encouraged by 1 Peter chapter 1. Be encouraged. Look unto Christ. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And with that, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time together, 1 Peter chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your word. We now pray that as we've been encouraged by the word, that you would give us the grace to obey and to live out what your word says. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining me for Bible Foundations with Ben Dixon. Tune in next time for chapter two of 1 Peter. I look forward to being with you then. God bless you.